So this is the last of our series on a happy life. And uh, for the last four weeks, this week included, we've been looking at what robs us of our joy and where, where is it that um, lasting happiness can be found. So um, we're daily bombarded with messages promising happiness, all sorts of things, commercials, books that we read, films that we watch. And, but what might give us pleasure for a moment is not the same as lasting joy, joy that prevails despite whatever else might be going on in our lives or the world around us. We can't control our circumstances, but what we're looking for and what this series is all about is how do we find that happiness that stays with us no matter what else changes around us. So James started the series by challenging us um, to base our lives on facts and not feelings. Feelings, he said, are gauges about where we're at. We can kind of say, well, this is where I'm at today. This is what I'm feeling. But too often we allow our feelings to dictate our decisions, but our feelings are too subjective for us to do that. And it's facts not feelings that should be the guide to our decisions. And then Dave, uh, week two, explained that we need a right view of our past and our future. The past is past. That's what Dave said, very profound. (laughs) But the past can't be changed. (laughs) We've got a future and we need to allow our future to define us. God has got a future for us and we've got a hope in his promises in this life and in eternity for the future. And then last week, Tim encouraged us through Philippians 4 to shift our focus away from the bad news, the fake news, and to focus on what is true and what is noble, what is right, what is pure, what is beautiful, and what is praiseworthy. And that can be a real challenge. And this week, we're looking at how to rest in and enjoy all the things that have been done for us rather than being consumed by the things that we feel pressurised to do and to accomplish. So life for most of us is pretty busy. There are demands on our time, whether that's from family or work or the need to find work or deadlines that we have that we've got to meet. But it's in all the demands, in all the expectations placed on us, how do we live a happy life day by day? How do we know that joy, that contentment? And it's not just about waiting for the weekend to come or the next holiday that we've got planned and that'll be lovely because then we'll relax and everything will be okay. And so we've always got things to do. There will always be demands on our time and it demands for our focus. But what we need to do is more than good time management skills. This is not a time management seminar because I'm not very good at it. (laughs) we live in a culture where our value is wrapped up in our achievement. And so then it's easy to place our worth on the things that we do. If we're doing well at whatever it is we do, life is good. But if things are not going so well, or if we stop doing things because maybe we lose our job, or someone else takes over our role, or we have ill health... It's easy for our identity to get thrown into question. So a couple of years ago, I I took a career break, which was a lovely, lovely thing to do, which basically meant that I stopped working as a deputy for about nine months. 
And uh, during this time, people used to come up to me. And you know that question when you meet someone and people say, what do you do? And, um, you know, it's easy. I used to find it easy to answer. And and during this time, I found it really, really hard because people say, oh, what do you do? And it, and it was really difficult to answer. And I found myself kind of stumbling, going, well, I, um, I, um, I talked, you know, I meet up with my friends, <laughs> have lunch, <laughs> see people, do things. And, it, and it, I found it really hard because I felt like I needed to justify myself, you know, justify my existence. And because so much of how we see ourselves is caught up in what we do. And I think society defines us or defines people by roles. And even in church, we kind of like a label. And, uh, and I'm amazed at the amount of times I go to like Christian things and people say, so what do you do in church? As if my role then defines me. And uh, we want to be liked, we want to be valued, we want to be accepted. And because of that, we have to be vigilant. Thank you, Tony. Vigilant. <laughs> I don't do big words. Um, but we have to guard ourselves against taking on other people's preconceptions of who we are. Society may attempt to define us by what we do, but God doesn't. And uh, we're going to look at, just to start with, we're going to look at different Bible verses today, but we're going to look at Luke 10, uh, 17 to 20. And um, in Luke 10, Jesus had sent out uh, 72 of his followers. He'd sent them out to the surrounding villages and towns. And he he told them to go out and preach and to heal the sick. And uh, I don't know, have we got the the verses? Lovely. Thank you. So um, verse 17 says, The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he, as Jesus, said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Jesus had sent them out and they had had a brilliant time. They'd preached that the kingdom of God was near, as Jesus had told them to do. And they'd seen people healed, they'd seen people set free. And they'd come back and they were excited and they were on a high. And they were like, Jesus, you'll never guess what, it works. We did what you did and it works. And and it was just amazing. And they're so excited. And Jesus says to them, yes. I've given you authority to do this. This is great. This is brilliant. This is good. It's wonderful. It's fantastic. But this is not the source of your joy. Don't rejoice in your success. Don't rejoice in your power or your authority or in the things that you can do. Good as they are, the real source of your joy is in the fact that your names are written in heaven. Now, Jesus is in no way belittling what they've done. He's not dismissing their excitement or their delight, but he knows that successes come and go. It's right that we celebrate our achievements, whether you know they're at work, at college, at home, but they are not the source of our joy. 
when, uh, when success is the source, then we're happy as long as things are going well, but then we lose that happiness when things don't go the way we want them to. And so Jesus is pointing them to a much greater reward. He's saying, rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Find joy in the fact that you have got eternal salvation. You have a confidence in your future for eternity that is secure because you are known and accepted by God. And whatever else happens, this isn't going to change. So on Tuesday night, we've got these 75 plus, because there'll be more people turning up to the comedy night. And when people sign up to do Alpha, we are going to celebrate. We are going to rejoice. We are going to say, this is fantastic. And we're going to thank God for that. But you know what? Even if we do what Lou told us to do, and we invite our neighbours, and they say they're coming, and they don't turn up, well, we're still going to celebrate. Because it is not dependent upon our success. Our um, identity in Christ is secure. God's not going to go, well, you didn't hit the mark that time, did you? Or you didn't do good enough. Because we've got a security in heaven. We can carry on rejoicing that our names are written in heaven. We want success and we'll pray for it and we'll celebrate it when it comes. But it doesn't define who we are. And then Philippians 3, verses 1 to 10. Paul is saying, um, verse 1, he says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble for me, and it's safer for you. Paul's telling them, rejoice in God. Find your joy in God. Then he goes on in verses um, 4 and 6, he lists all his accomplishments, all the things that he's done, all the things that he's achieved. You know, he was this um, amazing... um, uh, I um, can't even think of the word Pharisee and tribe of, um, from the tribe of Benjamin and all these things that he's done. And then in verse 7 he says, But whatever I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul is saying, whatever I have done, whatever my achievements, I count them as nothing. I count them as rubbish. They are immaterial compared to knowing Jesus and being found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own, but one that comes by from faith. The joy I have is based on being found in Jesus and in his righteousness. And when you read the Bible, there's a phrase that comes up time and time again. It's this phrase, in Christ or in Christ Jesus. And the reason it's used over and over again is because it conveys something really fundamental of what it means to be a Christian. It describes what has been done for us. Not what we have to do, but what has already been done. Now, I'm a really visual learner. And sometimes, you know, you kind of read the Bible and you read all these phrases and you think about these phrases, but it takes me a while to get them into my head. Um, So I like illustrations that, you know, 
quite simple, but kind of illustrate this thing. So you might like this illustration, you might not. But this is a piece of paper. This piece of paper, okay, represents your life. So, John, you're going to have to hold the microphone. <laughs> it's a two-handed job. Okay, so this piece of paper is your life. You want it? Yeah, oh, yeah, sorry. Yeah, no, no, yeah. Oh, well, I don't know. You've got to hold it. I've got to talk. Um, but, but you know what? Our lives get messed up. They get scribbled on. They get dirty. You know, you might get um, a bit torn, a bit broken. You know, all sorts of things happen to us. And our lives can be a bit messy. There can be things in our lives that, you know, we're kind of ashamed of. And we, we would really rather other people didn't see. And I can make this really messy, but I think you're getting the idea. But, you know, if I put this piece of paper in this book, in this Bible, it's hidden. Whichever way I turn, I can see the book, I can see the Bible. I can't see the piece of paper because it's inside. It's hidden inside. Thank you, assistant. <laughs> Our lives are hidden with Christ. Colossians 3 verse 3 says, You have died and your life is hidden with Christ Jesus in God. If you are a Christian, you are in Christ. When we confess him as our Lord and Saviour, not only do we get forgiven, but God places us in Christ. When God looks at you, he doesn't see your success or your achievements. He doesn't see your mistakes or your regrets or your sin. He sees Christ. God does not require us to achieve a particular standard before we get acceptable to him. In Romans 3, verse 23, it states that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That means the standard is perfection. And so no matter how good any one of us might be, none of us is without sin. We have all done things that offend God. We have all done things that we regret. It's easy to compare ourselves with others and think, you know, well, compared to that person, I'm a pretty good person, you know. Because we compare ourselves. And uh, we can always compare ourselves to a mass murderer or somebody like that. And then we'll always look good. But none of us is without sin. All of us fall short of the glory of God. And because nobody is able to live a sinless life, God sent Jesus to live a perfect life. He was tempted in every way. But unlike us, he never failed. Jesus was without sin. And Hebrews 4 verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet was without sin. Jesus lived a perfect life. Everything we fail to do, Jesus did by living in perfect obedience to God the Father. We know that we can have forgiveness for sin because of Christ's death on the cross. But sometimes we forget that as well as being forgiven, we are credited with Jesus' perfect life. When the Bible says that we are in Christ, it means that through our faith and confession of Jesus as Lord, not only have we benefited from his death, 
but we have benefited from his life. When God looks at you as a Christian, he sees Jesus' perfect law-keeping and his unblemished obedience. And it's because of Jesus' perfect life, his righteousness given to us, and that means we can come with confidence before God. This is the gospel. This is the proclamation of what God has done for us. Religion is about what we can do for God. But the gospel is the opposite. It's about what God has done for us. When we believe the gospel, we're abandoning our own attempts to make ourselves right with God. And we trust and we believe and we live in the truth of what God has already done for us. In Galatians, we, we've often looked at Galatians in this church. Paul was really firm when he wrote to the church in Galatians. In, in chapter 3, he starts, he says, Oh, foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? And he calls them foolish because they've believed and uh, having started off by believing and trusting in everything that Jesus has done for them, they're now trying to earn his acceptance by proving their worth, by fulfilling laws, by doing things. We can't make ourselves right with God. It is because of everything that Jesus did. But we have this tendency to then think that, well, we'll start there and now we're going to prove ourselves worthy of this. And uh, in verse 6, um, Paul's trying to re reinforce it by saying, Abraham, he's, he's giving them an example of Abraham, and he said, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteous. Abraham was not righteous. But God treated him as if he was living a righteous life. Religion says that we need to live righteously and this makes us pleasing and this makes us acceptable to God. Or we live unrighteously and so we're alienated from God. But the gospel says, what the gospel, what the Bible preaches us is Romans 5 verse 8. It says, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. We are loved and accepted by God whilst we are sinful and imperfect. You cannot clean up your life in order to earn credited righteousness. That isn't credited. Credited is something that's put in your account. You receive it while you're still a sinner. To have righteousness credited to you means that you are treated legally as if you were actually righteous and free from condemnation even though in reality you're still unrighteous in your heart and in your behavior if you think back to um our series on the scandal of grace before christmas we looked at so many characters then. And, and if you remember, I can't remember who did it, but we looked at Abraham. And uh, you'll remember that he made some pretty big mistakes. He doubted God in many ways. He pretended that his wife was his sister and he sent her off to be with another man in order to save his own life. And then he slept with his servant because he didn't believe God had given him a, a child with Sarah. 
even though God had told him that he would. Abraham made the mistake of thinking that he needed to do things. But saving faith is faith in God's provision and not in our performance. The promise God made to Abraham had nothing to do with his performance. But despite his mistakes, Abraham's faith is credited to him as righteous. And Paul is using the example of Abraham to reinforce to the Galatians that you don't have to clean up your life in order to earn credited righteousness. If it's earned, it isn't credited. But it's credited because it's given to us and we receive it whilst we are still imperfect and still messing up. And because it is credited to us through Jesus, God treats us as if we are righteous and we are no longer under condemnation. Now, most world religions are founded on what you need to do. Things you need to do in order to achieve or make yourself acceptable to God. And so Christianity is unique in that at the heart of the gospel, it is not about what you need to do except receive Jesus, but it's about what has already been done for us. If you're a Christian, then hopefully this isn't new, it may be, but we know that our standing before God is not dependent upon our performance, but on knowing and living in the truth of it, and not always the same. What we know in our head, what we know the Bible tells us, and living it out are not always the same things. And the difficulty is that things can be really subtle. We know the truth, but we don't always apply it. And a telltale sign that our confidence is no longer in the gospel and in what God has already done for us, but in what we do when our performance slips. When you have a bad week and then Sunday comes round and you come to church and you're kind of feeling hesitant to approach God and you're finding it difficult to worship him because you're kind of thinking about all the things that you've messed up with and all the things that you should have done that you haven't done. And because our performance has slipped, then we feel that God disproves of us. It's not a bad thing to be aware of our weaknesses and uh, to be aware of our sin. But that should lead us to repentance and not to alienation from God or despair. And there's two good questions to ask yourself. Two questions that I've asked myself. And the first is, are you more aware of your sin than of what Jesus accomplished on the cross? Do you think of God as disappointed in you rather than delighting in you? Now, I know how I should answer those questions. I know the correct theological answer. I know how to answer you from the Bible but the reality is it doesn't always match up to what's going on in my head. The reality is I often think of God as being disappointed in me. Normally because I'm disappointed in myself. And I think of him as being disappointed in me. And I rarely think of him as delighting in me. But that's not what the Bible says. But the problem is I project my own feelings onto God. But just because I think it doesn't mean it's true. 
And that's where I need to challenge my thinking. I need to remind myself every day of the truth of what God thinks about me and then apply it to my life on that day in that circumstance. C.J. Mahaney's um, written a lot of books and leads a church in America. And he says, we have a constant tendency to stop remembering the cross and to start depending on legalism and self-effort. We all have this dependency, whether we recognize it or not. We stop remembering what God has done for us through Jesus' death on the cross. And we focus on our own performance, our own list of things to do, our own way to find success and value and worth and recognition. Or Or we just focus on our own failures and our own shortcoming. But we are in Christ. And that means that before we had chance to either impress God with our good deeds or let him down through our sin or our neglect, Ephesians 1.4 tells us that he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. God chose us. We did not choose him. We didn't slip in by mistake. We were handpicked by God. Maybe there's days when you feel that you don't belong. Maybe you feel like an outsider. But in verse 5 it says, He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. God didn't just choose us, he adopted us into his family. An adoption is a legally binding status. It's not dependent upon our performance. We are his children, and whatever we do, we're his children. He is our father. We cannot be unadopted. We're part of God's family. There are days when maybe we don't feel loved or even lovable, but in Christ we are loved by God with an inseparable love. Because Romans 8, verse 38 to 39 says, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are loved and nothing can separate us from God's love for us. We get it wrong. We might feel far away from God because we've made some big mistakes. Or maybe we just keep making the same mistake over and over. But Ephesians 1 verse 7 says, In him we have the redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. We don't deserve forgiveness. None of us do. But we receive it in Jesus through his grace towards us. Feelings can tell us that we're rubbish. But as Christians, we need to remind ourselves that we are in Christ. You might shout at your kids later on today. You might shout at your husband or your wife or your colleague or or maybe just the person in front of you as you're driving home and they're not doing what you want them to do. A bit of car rage. You might get jealous. You might say some things this week that you regret and you think, I shouldn't have said that. But none of that changes our position. 
We are in Christ on the day that everything goes well, and we are still in Christ when we know we've gotten it completely wrong. And uh, lots of you have probably heard this before, but the most influential preacher you will ever listen to is you. When you are feeling great and things are going well, you need to preach the truth to yourself and remind yourself that your name is written in heaven. And when you're under pressure and you don't know what to do, you need to preach to yourself and remind yourself that your name is still written in heaven. And if you're not a Christian and you don't know God in this way and you don't have confidence in this way, then you can know this. It's about believing in Jesus and putting your trust and your faith in him. And we would love to talk to you and we'd love to explain more about this to you. And, uh, and the most important thing is that you don't have to get your life sorted out first because that's not what it's about. Happiness is not found in what we do, but in what God has done for us. Our lives will be a collection of successes and a collection of failures. But God is constant. What he declares about us to be true is true regardless of our circumstances. And uh, there's a quote from Tim Keller, uh, another author and church leader. And he says, you can't believe God without believing in God. But you can believe in God without believing God. And this is not meant to be a tongue twister. Okay? Sounds a bit like it. But what he's basically saying is, you have to believe God is real in order to believe what he says is true. But you can believe God is real. You can believe God exists without believing what he says is true. When we believe God, rather than believing in him, when we believe God, we are confessing God is who he says he is. We're saying, your word is true, God. Even if my feelings don't match, even if my feelings tell me otherwise, I will believe that you are with me, that your word and you have the power to work all things for good for those that love you. I may have let you down, but I believe your word is that you don't reject me, but you shower me with mercy and grace. So I'm coming back to you. We can believe in God, we can believe he exists, but it makes no difference to our lives. But when we believe God, it impacts every area of our lives. When we believe God, that's when we find happiness. That's when we find joy. Because God and his word are consistent. They're the things that don't change. And I found this definition of joy really helpful. And um, because, again, it's one of those words that we talk about. But what does that mean? And uh, so for me, this definition really helped. It says, joy is the settled assurance that God is in control of all the details of my life. The quiet confidence that ultimately everything is going to be all right. And the determined choice to praise God in all things. It's the assurance that God is in control of all the details of my life because God says, that's what he says in his word. 
is the quiet confidence that ultimately everything is going to be all right. Doesn't mean I won't go through difficulties. Doesn't mean there won't be challenges. Doesn't mean there won't be things that I really don't want to happen to me. Doesn't mean I'll live a perfect life. But God's word says that ultimately it will be all right. I have a hope and a security. I have a future in eternity with him. And he has the power to work all things for good for those that love him. And in that, because I believe in that, I'm having that choice to praise God in all things. A happy life is not found in the things we do, but in our confidence in God. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have been speaking to us today. Thank you that you have reminded us, Lord, that of what you have already done for us, your grace towards us is so great, Lord Jesus. We don't have to impress you. We don't have to do things to earn your love. But you have lavished your love upon us. Father, thank you for your truth of your word. And thank you, God, that we know that happiness is found in you. You are the source of our joy. You are the source that never changes. Help us to remember this on a daily basis as we go about our daily lives to keep focused upon you. Amen.